You're listening to a Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2021 forum, where we discuss the long view, a theme that asks how different perspectives on time can affect the growth of our cities. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the M Pavilion podcast. Hello, my name is Jen Zielinska, and today I have the great pleasure of introducing the provocative thinker and writer Timothy Morton in conversation with Andrew McKenzie. Professor of English at Rice University, Timothy writes and thinks broadly on philosophy, culture, and ecology, and their lecture kicks off Living Cities Forum 2021 on the 22nd of July. Morton's books include Being Ecological, Ecology Without Nature, and Dark Ecology. They have collaborated with a wide range of artists and musicians, including Bjork, Jeff Bridges, Heim Steinbeck, and Pharrell Williams. In 2019, they collaborated with Jennifer Walsh to produce the operatic work, Time, Time, Time. And their book, Hyperobjects, describes objects so massively distributed in time and space as to challenge human-centered perceptions of where and when we are in the world. Morton is considered to be a driving force in a new way of looking at the world, alongside fellow philosopher Graham Harmon, through the lens of object-oriented ontology, or triple O. And I feel I should warn listeners before we start to prepare for having your mind slightly blown by what the world looks like through this apparently esoteric, but actually acutely real, philosophical explosion. Well, thank you for uh, taking some time out of your evening today. Your name and your writing has been circulating with us in the in the group talking about this forum for a couple of years now, and we've been following the writing and will continue to. It's it's um, it is hard to imagine how more profound uh, a, a rethinking of our place in the world could be. I thought it would be good to start with um, Triple O in a, in, a, in a pretty broad sense. Um, when I first started reading about it and reading your work and, and seeing your lectures with Graham Hammond, et cetera, it seemed to me extraordinary that, if I'm right, what it's trying to do is essentially break open what has been a, a convention of thinking for several centuries, um, that convention of the subject-object, that convention of humanity and everything else. It's a, it's, it's a really quite... It's one of those moments where you read it and you think, oh, that, yeah, that makes kind of sense. And then the more it lives with you, the more you think it actually impacts everything about yeah. everything that you think about. Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> so it's many so, people it's so get into it, go through this existential shift. Um, I know I did. Graham did, actually. When he first figured it out, um, he was supposed to go to a, be going to a Christmas party at his school, and he just sat there on the sofa going... You know, I can't make this theory wrong. I don't know how it's good for it. I have to accept it, but wow. You know, and I went through the same thing. I spent the first few weeks of realizing that I was one of these people, um, feeling like I was surrounded and permeated by all kinds of other entities that were just as real as me. And you're quite right about the subject-object dualities. And my friend Denise Ferreira da Silva, who's written a very, very good book towards a global idea of race, basically argues, I think successfully, that any subject-object duality is basically a master-slave duality. So at the back of what we're doing very much is deconstructing this master-slave duality. It's about time that that was done within 
so-called Western philosophy. You know, I'm, I'm very against cultural appropriation. So what I'm doing actually is kind of deconstructing, for want of a better word, <clears throat> from inside, as it were, the HAL 9000 of the Western philosophical tradition. And it, what's interesting about it is you only have to remove a couple of little boron rods, as it were, for that reactor to start being very creative and saying all kinds of things that, um, you know, white supremacy and patriarchy can't really say. That's the interesting thing about it. Um, and uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're right on the money there. Um, the the idea that, the, the, I think the word object gets in the way, that's the trouble. We really should have called it de-objectification-oriented ontology, but we sort of ran out of ink, you know, and OOO sort of looks weirdly cool and, and all that. It sort of sounds good and it looks interesting, and weird, but, you know, really it's not about objects at all. When you hear the word object, you get this prejudice about what you think is the worst possible thing that could happen to a, to a human being, right? Objectification being turned into a product. And um, you also get this idea that objects are like little solid balls, you know, or whatever, lumps, you know, and, th and that's actually exactly what we're trying to undermine, those two things. If anything, an OOO object is much more like a liquid, you know. Um, when you try to grasp it, it just kind of... Um, and, um, and if anything, you know, there, there isn't this, um, you know, only human beings and only in particular white male human beings have privileged access to, to how things are, you know. Just a quick word about ontology to make sure people understand what that is. It, ontology is the study of how things exist, right? It's not what exists, it's how they exist, right? Like assume there's just one thing. I don't know, I'm not a scientist or whatever, or, I'm not a theologian, you know, but if there's just one thing, how does that one thing exist? If there's a trillion things, how do those trillion things exist? And ontology is about how they exist, not what exists. How does that play out in the relationship between how we understand things that are alive and things that aren't alive? Because uh, one of the things you talk about is what we are as bodies composed of. And of course, we are composed of some H2O and some other elements that we would not typically call, we wouldn't call water alive. But we have this idea that there's a thing called living, which is me. There's all kinds of toxic ideas out there about life. Yeah. Like, there's the biological idea of bios, the Greek bios, like as in biology, life as opposed to non-life. And Right now I'm writing this memoir about me and all the supposedly inanimate objects that have been part of my life, you know, but I, I find it very difficult to say inanimate, in fact, I never say it. Um, and then there's obviously this other idea of sort of just bare, bare life or, or Zoe as in zoology, right? The kind of life that is, is legal under certain regimes to kind of exterminate or incarcerate or whatever, you know. And then there's this other notion of life, which is, um, I think, is what I'm talking about, which is thumos, right? Which is this other Greek word, and it's the last syllable of the word rhythm. And when you say thumos, what you're really doing is you're pointing to this, right? The th th thumos means pulsation or vibration or something like that, movement, right? Um, the RHY part of rhythm, like the word diarrhea, just means body fluids, right? So there's the, the intrinsic pulsation of the fluids, right? And so that, that kind of life for me is also in anything, right? Like, like, like in a way, as many quantum theoretical people have observed, actually, maybe life forms are telling us something deep about quantum theory that chemistry isn't because life forms resist entropy, 
And the reason actually why I appear to be solid is actually there's lots of quantum mechanical things happening everywhere in me, sustaining my, my being precisely by doing this kind of shimmery, not here and not there thing that they do, right? And so that level to me seems to be uh, what we're talking about when it comes to alive, this idea of the way things are kind of shimmering or vibrating or just moving all by themselves. <clears throat> and I'd much rather think of the universe as sort of al alive and as kind of people rather than as just kind of me mechanical, which is actually scientifically inaccurate and um, just bits of, a, bits of machinery. In interesting ways, that um, that kind of uh, almost has an analog to um, how we understand some ancient belief systems, which of course had strong animist traditions in them, not least of which, of course, here in Australia, the indigenous relationship to land, which ascribed human characteristics to what we would, as colonists, call natural forms, mountains and rivers, etc. Is there is there a kind of meaningful connection there between what you're talking about and, and this deeper grain, this kind of millennia-old understanding of our relationship to what's around us? Very much so. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm as strongly opposed to the notion of cultural appropriation um, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm deconstructing the Western philosophical tradition from the inside to kind of discover things that sound very like other traditions. You, it, and what's cool is you only have to scratch the white Western patriarchal stuff a little bit to all this other juicy stuff comes out. Um, and, that, and, and that's sort of like the good news, right? The, the uh, way in which it enforces its mode of truth is incredibly fragile. And you just need to kind of massage it a little bit and all this other stuff starts to starts to happen. <laughs> well, actually, that kind of leads on to uh, a, a question I had, which was um, you talk about uh, from the inside deconstructing this this tradition. Um, what How has your writing been received, you might say, in contemporary philosophy? I think worrying too much about that and actually trying to micromanage it also even more so is a kind of insanity. So honestly, I sort of protect myself from knowing what other people are thinking and I kind of walk around in a strange, introspective, hermit-like cloud of almost perfect isolation where I don't really concern myself with how I'm coming across to people or, or how people perceive me. I have no clue. Yeah, okay. It's quite Socratic in a way. <laughs> uh, in, in the sense of, in the sense of uh, taking your own path, driving your own path. I think it's um, the only way. Philosophy actually means the love of wisdom, right? We, we know that. And, if you're going to like choose between whether those whether wisdom and love are ideas or emotions, I think we're going to go with emotions. You know, like what mo most people assume philosophy is about having big ideas and then comparing the bigness of your ideas with other people's big ideas. I wonder where they got that idea from. Um, but really, it's two emotions, isn't it? It's the wisdom in love or loving wisdom or some kind of fusion of those two emotions. I, I was wondering whether there are, in fact, some other antecedents, you might say, or, or other. I know that both yourself, um, some some other of the of the triple O writers have have talked quite a bit around the early phenomenologists, and and it seems to me there's some kind of interesting uh, connection there to conversations a, a century ago. Would you agree with that? For real. Um, I'm an old friend of the late, great Jacques Derrida. The difference between me and some of the other OOO people is I, I can't give up on the deconstruction. And I think I kind of backed into 
the OOO through the deconstruction, actually, which is sort of logical because Derrida is getting it from Heidegger, um, who invents the word deconstruction as a way to continue phenomenology. It's actually not that phenomenology is bad or wrong, and it's not that phenomenology means subjective experience of, which is what it means in psychology, right? Phenomenology just literally is one of my favorite words, phenomenology. I've loved that word since I was 17 years old. And what it really means is how something happens tells you what it is, or if you like, the, the how is the what. The how is the what, right? So salt is a thing that dissolves in water. That's the how of salt or part of the how of salt, right? That tells you what salt is, right? Um, and then, you know, there's the the chemical phenomenology of it, but then there's also the phenomenology that it reminds you of your grandmother and you use it to to, to flavor the, the crepes that you just made. So there is there is a very clear connection between phenomenology and the way you described ontology. They're quite close. Sure, to because you know how yeah. how things happen is that they're actually constantly shimmering, and that they are not little dots that are kind of moving through a thing called time or a thing called space. They're not solid, and they're not, and, and and to exist is not to carry on forever. The phenomenology of things, whether those things be sentences or interviews or, or me or my shirt or a black hole is that they have this kind of um, intrinsic instability to them and an intrinsic kind of shadowy mysteriousness to them that, that, they, that, that they cannot be completely appropriated even by themselves. That's a, that's a very, it's a very, um, I could see how that has very provocative uh, consequences, that idea. You mentioned that um, you, you live this um, you, almost a kind of classic hermetic um, kind of life, in a way almost contrary to that. One thing that's been quite distinguished about your, um, your, your writing career is that you seem to be quite interested in being read by people who aren't other philosophers or, or even necessarily other academics. Um, and that there's something about your engagement with ideas through collaborations with artists, uh, musicians, but also the fact that when I picked up your being ecological in this little penguin, softback, cheap little kind of um, you know book, it, it was it was it gave all the signals of please read me um, uh, to to a wider audience. So I guess is 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 that a, a deliberate thing on your part that that um, that for the ideas to have kind of breath somehow that um, you, need, you, you want to engage with that kind of broader audience, broader constituency? Almost my entire life has been a complete accident. And, you know, so I moved to the USA by accident. And about five years in, I realized, oh, my God, I think I just moved to the USA. Ah! And it's the same with art, with art pe pe people. They write to me or they call me or they want to talk to me. And that's the way around it is. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a yin person. Right, I, I enjoy like the the so-called passivity side of of life, of just sort of letting things happen and see what see what happens. And the reason why I like art, on the other hand, is that that it's sort of you know, it's a place in our culture where we allow the possibility that things could be different to happen, and that is the future. Right, art is literally, I believe, is the future. It's from the future, and my job is, as it were, to be the kind of the janitor of the future or the person kind of pointing towards the door that's called the future. Um, and, and, and that's sort of my job, you know, um, especially now we're living in this decade in which allowing things to be different might be a very good idea for the whole biosphere.
Well, I wanted to move on to the question of the biosphere and ecology. The subject is, is, has been something that you've been writing about for quite some time and writing about it in a way that um, I think probably confronts some of the um, some of the traditions, you might say, of how ecology is written and spoken about. And in particular, you would have to say that there has been a fairly long uh, connection between uh, thinking ecologically, um, talking about ecology, and a kind of an, a, an activism around protecting uh, natural systems. Um, and in, in England, as in America, as in Australia, we have seen over the decades people chaining to trees, people doing all sorts of things to protect um, natural systems, etc. And that has kind of then extended perhaps in a, in a, in a more dramatic and global sense around the, the issues around climate that we're all kind of facing. Um, uh, global warming, as you would prefer to call then than climate change. And so it's interesting listening to some of your talks and, and, and reading your writing um, where there's a bit of a tension around how effective some of that stuff is and whether it is actually meaningfully going to change the dial on these things or to what extent. One reason why we're talking on Zoom is that I've made a decision recently, which is that I'm never going to fly again to give a lecture or seminar ever in my life ever again. And, you know, as far as activism goes, I'm, I, the, so I was talking to um, Extinction Rebellion Youth last year, and my basic stance was, how can I be of assistance to you? Because Generation Z, or whatever you call them, are the ones who are really going to face the brunt of what we've done we being the last 12,500 years of human being history, in particular the last 400 years of, with slavery and colonialism, in particular the last 200 years with industry and the steam engine and carbon emissions, you know. Um, and really, how can I be of help is my stance. I have no quarrel with any kind of activism. Um, activism can happen at a number of different scales, of course. There's the individual scale on in which eating a lot less meat and being very careful with your food waste is, is the best thing you can do, right? And then there's the neighborhood level, which I think is a great level. Is my, my friend Calibri, who's an activist from Puerto Rico, um, thinks the neighborhood is the atom of social change, right? So she's trying to organize neighborhoods to campaign for environmental change in their neighborhoods. I would be the last person to try to dissuade anybody from acting passionately about anything, actually. Um, so I think that's the main thing I'd like to go on go on record to say. There's all kinds of other stuff about the fine print and the, the optics and the blah, 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 but it's really irrelevant, especially now. Um, the only thing that's any good that I can think of doing is helping people not to feel like they want to die, you know, because people aged uh, in their teens, who I, I speak a lot to, and sometimes they seem to like my stuff quite a lot, you know, I can imagine what it must feel like for them quite a lot. There's a suicide rate's gone up quite a lot amongst that generation, and it's kind of obvious why. The, the weight of the past is weighing on them like this massive, and it's not just the last decade or 20 years, it's the last 12,000 years, as I was saying, and, and, and the last two centuries and the last five centuries, and there's a lot, you know. And so how to, how to help these people get out of bed and not feel like they're going to die and not feel burned out. It's a, it's a major side effect of activism is that you can get really burned out and, you know, f feel like it's hopeless, you know. So how can I help people to feel refreshed while they're doing it? How can I give them th things to sort of think, feel, 
about that will help them not to feel like they want to die. Because I, I, I do think that you're, you're correct in that the the um, we are facing all of these enormous, enormous challenges precisely at the moment where um, people uh, seem to ha have the, only the sketchiest idea of what they might do about it or how they might go about it. Oh, I actually think to differ. I think we know exactly what to do on a number of different levels. Like I say, you know, be, becoming vegan, um, not doing internal combustion engines so much, trying to arrest the people who work about two miles that way. They're called the directors of Chevron and Exxon. They understood what was happening for 50 years. They're guilty. They should be put on trial for something like war crimes and put in jail. Um, and, you know, how to take responsibility, which is different from guilt. I think we actually, we know what to do. You know, the, the interesting thing is, how come we all aren't doing it, right? How come 7.5 billion of, of us aren't doing it? And when I say that, what I mostly mean is like, a, it's, it's modal, as we like to say, like people like me who live in the USA, that we should be 99% responsible for what's happening right now. Pacific Islander, 0.0001%, right? But nevertheless, we need 7.5 billion, but this is a planet scale thing. Right. This is a planet scale ecological emergency we're going through. And, you know, people like me usually talk in the key signature of stupid and evil. I'm not talking to activists. I'm talking to people like me. And I'm looking at people like me and thinking, wow, stupid and evil is a really bad place from which to do good stuff. It just makes you want to hide under the bed. You look at page one of the newspaper. All, these, all this data, right? Every day there's a different data dump of stuff, right? 200,000 of this and 50% of that and X, Y, Z. That's, you're stupid, you don't know this. And then you turn to the middle of the paper and it says, you're a bad person. You don't do this right. And, you know, for me, that's... I, the, why are 7.5 billion people not doing this? Because people like me are talking wrong. I can only take responsibility for my side of it, Right. So it must be the way we're talking. And I think the way often that people like me talk is quite religious. We've hoovered up everyone we can hoover up using good versus evil. We need everyone on side. Do you, do you see um, that the way you write about ecology, in a sense, the, the philosophical breaking open of the Western canon, it's therefore directly connected to that, you would say, a, a form of activism, which is to connect better to allow for a better connection to these subjects and to respond better to what we are going through. Yeah, like, like I say, we live in a very yang world right now, and I'm super yin person, you know, and so I'm very much about, you know, for me, it, 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 it's as I study Buddhism, Buddhism also talks about this, right? It's not exactly what you believe that starts World War V, but how you believe it. Right. So, for example, there are beliefs about belief, you know, like some people think believe means hold on for grim death to something. And some people think belief means let go and trust. That's called science. Right. And I, I would like to encourage people to feel more like scientists without having to pay for the degree or know how to differentiate with respect to X, because I think that could be very helpful. This stance of kind of curious and ready to be wrong and ready to be amazed and slightly maybe slightly scared or grossed out or like wow that's weird you know but you're still there like absorbing the data and thinking about it i think that's a pretty good stance and i don't think it's restricted to just science you know In, indeed I, I get i did want to move i guess on to on to um you're writing about art and uh, the book you're writing at the moment that will be published later this year um all art is ecological um 
that's an interesting uh, declarative statement for a for a book. Um, could you just briefly uh, unpack the the kind of the foundational thinking for that book? One of the missions that I've been on for several decades now is to show people how you know ecological art isn't about ecology. It is e ecology, right? Like we, you write a poem on a piece of paper. The paper was made from trees. It's very, 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 very simple. You write a poem on a computer screen. The the the, the, the poem is made from pixels, um, which use electromagnetic energy, right? That's the environment. And so, you know, in exactly the same way that nowadays, I think if you're, you know, a civilized human being, you, you, in a university, you get taught to recognize how gender and race and class are always part of whatever poem you're reading, even if they're not about that. I'm trying to encourage people to notice that everything they look at is also the environment. It's what the new left didn't do. The new left was all about gender and race added to class in the late 1960s and I think maybe environment was considered to be like a, a, a hippie thing, so let's not do that. But clearly, there's a lot, very, very logical connection. And actually, I firmly believe that ending white supremacy and patriarchy are logically foundational to any truly meaningfully progressive ecological movement. Would Would you say that um, when you unpack all of those things that are all connected and all part of the the material world that we live in? Um, it almost feels like the question is then, you know, is there anything that's not ecological? All art is ecological, perhaps all living is ecological. What would not be ecological in that sense? The attempt to contextualize is always an explosion that cannot be contained, right? Whenever you try to stop the context explosion, you're probably involving some kind of weird belief or metaphysics that is kind of weird and violent, right? You know, because the leg bone's connected to the arm bone and the arm bone's connected to the table bone and the table bone's connected to the floor bone and the floor bone's connected to the street bone and the street bone's connected to the toxic waste dump bone and the toxic waste dump bone's connected to the planet bone and the planet bone's connected to the electromagnetic shield around Earth so that life can exist bone and the shield bone is connected to the sun bone and the sun bone's connected to the solar system but, and on and on, right? It, it's an explosion. It, you, there's no arbitrary stopping point. So, yeah, basically, yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier um, moving into triple O from uh, deconstruction, and and in a way, what's interesting is that deconstruction seemed to find a, a ready home, you might say, in a lot of um, architectural narratives and discussion. A lot of architects seem to um, really engage with that philosophy and how it applied to how they thought of their their work and their discipline. It, it would be interesting to see how Triple uh, O or, or perhaps this approach that you have to the interconnectedness of everything, how that may or may not be received by architects. Because, of course, they, they very definitely do involve themselves in materials and how to use yeah. materials. can't speak to other countries, but there's a huge OOO explosion in architecture and design going on in the USA because already they're involved anyway, right? Like you're, if you make your building out of overkill materials, you know, I like this word overkill. Um, if you were gonna translate the Freudian death drive into a word that, and if everyone could understand, I think it would be overkill, right? So you make your, you make your park or your building out of overkill materials that last hundreds of years and you've just screwed a lot of other life forms. 
just to be very naively stupid about it. I don't know. I have no idea about the load-bearing properties of materials. I, I couldn't possibly do what, what, what people do. Um, you mentioned earlier that you, um, you moved, uh, that the, <laughs> the things happened, that you moved to America and it was five years before you realized that you'd moved to America. Um, and I, I guess I did want to ask you about that because, you know, without being, I guess, too flippant, you know, the, there's a tradition by which you, you know, you hear about a philosopher who's published a book out of Paris or, or published a book out of Berlin or, um, or published a book out of a wooden cabin somewhere in the forest. Um, you don't often hear of a philosopher or a writer or a thinker who's published a book out of, out of Houston. Um, what is it about, and you, you like living there, what is it about uh, Houston that, that appeals to you? Well, again, you know, um, moving there was an accident. Um, the job I worked for made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I left California where my mortgage was underwater because of the financial crash of 2008. Um, and I love living in California as well for all kinds of other reasons. And before that, I was in Boulder, Colorado, where I finally realized I'd actually moved to the USA. And I loved Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. And one reason, um, you know, that why was it strongly influenced how I think about ecological, um, ecological politics, art and philosophy. And I found myself surrounded by these things called lawns, which Americans seem to have, right? They have this compulsion to have in front of their house, this kind of void space, which is, you know, kind of um, a kind of a death space for lots of life forms, you know, but to try being black and setting foot on someone's lawn in Texas, you'd probably be shot dead because it's a statement about the privacy of your property in public. And it's basically that, you know, because this is democracy, every person has to have their own private Berlin Palace front bit in front of their house, you know. And this is the first time I'd really encountered these things. And I sort of thought long and hard about what on earth are these? You know, now I live in Houston. I'm actually trying to get lawns uh, kind of banned from my neighborhood. I, I, I live in a house owned by the Manil Collection. And I'm talking with them about, like, let's get out front on this issue of not using gasoline-powered leaf blowers and lawnmowers anymore. And let's get out front on this issue of, you know, let's not have these void death spaces in front of our houses. Let's do what they do in Britain, which is rewilding our gardens you know and i'm just right now i'm not i'm just what i'm letting happen in my garden and frequently now i find i can pick about a pound of chanterelle mushrooms there's a lot of tropicals humidity here you know we're, we're about 40 minutes drive from the actual tropics and there's all kinds of mushrooms grow if you just let them but i like houston because it it's kind of is a mushroom you know it just sort of happened like london you know it just sort of happened it just it took a lot less time because it was an industrial capitalism kind of a city but it just kind of went poof, and nobody knows about it yet. You know, no one, not enough people know that it's the third largest megacity in the US of A. And it's probably, although it has also major desegregation, it's probably one of the most desegregated big cities in the USA. And it has a real feel to it. If you like, it's the kind of doofusy 17-year-old brother of the cool 14-year-old goth girl that is New Orleans. Before we before we finish, I did also want to ask. We've talked about um, binaries um, a, a few times uh, today and pushing against binaries. And I wanted to ask you, I guess, a, a direct question as to whether that rethinking around binaries in in, in so many different philosophical senses, it, how that relates to you living as a non-binary person. Is there a relationship there? Yes, um, I like the I like the term non-binary because it is not a something you can point to. Yeah. 
And in general, binaries tend to be somewhat toxic. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that the world is reducible to one, right? Um, there's a nice saying in esoteric Buddhism, which is that um, not one and not two, right? Like that reality is not dualism, it is also not monism. Um, and so it's sort of unspeakable. That's better, you know. And um, yeah, I, 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 what can I say? I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm there. You're listening to a Living Cities Forum podcast. This podcast comes as part of our 2021 forum, where we discuss the long view. A theme that asks how different perspectives on time can affect the growth of our cities. For more, visit livingcitiesforum.org or subscribe to the M Pavilion podcast. <laughs>